The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I remind you that all the teachings on Isaiah can be found at my website, jasonderoshi.com. You just go there, go up to the search engine, type Isaiah, and you'll see this title in there, Celebrating the Servant Savior. And I forget, I think this is 24 or 25, the, the lesson that we've engaged in. We're going back to Isaiah 49, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. We're looking at the last three verses today in the chapter. In verse 14, after this remarkably beautiful proclamation of hope that starts the chapter focused on the person that Isaiah tags the servant. This is his favorite title for the Messiah. We, we hear the words of Zion, Jerusalem, crying out, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then, and then God just enters in to respond to them. He claims that he hasn't forgot them. Indeed, with, deep, with the deepest compassion, even deeper than a mom has for her child, God has the kind of compassion for Zion. This, this city is his bride. And the bride has offspring. And that's the people of God. As proof that he does not forget Zion, he says... Look at my hands. I have you engraved in the palms of my hands. And then he, he tells us what he sees, and then he begins to unpack the implications of, of the level of commitment that's just part of his being. He promises that his people will enjoy great beauty and growth, that his, his people will be, be an international community. And then today, that they will be fully delivered from all enemies. So I'm going to read through our text, beginning in verse 14. You can keep this outline in your mind as we walk through. And then I'll pray one more time. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you, O Zion, on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They, are, they all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord... Surely you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you will be far away. 
The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too small for me. Make room for me to dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who's borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you, O Zion, and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame." Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, O Zion, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know, all of them, that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. It's the third proof, third implication of the proof that he has them in the palm of his hand. Engraved right there, I see, O Zion, your walls rebuilt. I see your sons gathering in. I see all of your oppressors pushed away. Can the prey of the mighty be taken? That's the question that we read in verse 24. Or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? And the testimony of the text is, yes, they can. Let's pray one more time. Father, I ask that you would now meet us. I believe that you have given in your word here a message of deep, deep hope for the oppressed for those bound, and I pray that you would speak from this ancient word through your Son and meet us. In light of blood-bought mercy, speak now and let us be filled with hope that will give us persevering grace. In Christ I pray, amen. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? So we have this image of a strong man who has enslaved a captive. A tyrant who has imprisoned many. And the question is, can they be rescued? Is it possible? And the strong word of the text is, yes, they can. If you have the right king, the right deliverer. So, God declares in verse 25, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. And the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. Why? Because I'm going to show up. I will contend with those who contend with you. And just like we've seen in all the rest of the passage, the you here is feminine singular. It's Zion. The city, the bride of the king. 
The bride of God himself is Zion, and God's declaring, you've been overcome, but not forever. So, I will contend with those who contend with you, and will save your children. So, we saw the children mentioned back in verse 17. I noted how the ESV renders it builders, but my Hebrew text has sons. It's the difference between Bana and Bain. Bain is son, Bana is the verb to build, and when you put something, a suffix at the end of either of those words, they look very much alike. And the Hebrew text that I have says sons, but the ESV translator, doing the very kind of wrestling that Chris is having to do on Leviticus right now, wrestling with, we want the most faithful text. The ESV translator went with builders. I've gone with sons. And it's because the whole context is about the sons returning to Jerusalem. We see the mention of these children again in verse 22. I'm going to lift up my hands to the nations, God says. I'm going to raise my signal to the peoples. That signal we saw in chapter 11, verse 10, is the Messiah himself. He is the the signal like a light that will go out calling the nations into Jerusalem. God will raise up his signal and who will come? Your sons and your daughters will come. O Zion. So this bride, the city, is going to be refilled with offspring. Offspring of God, offspring of Zion. God promises here, I'll save your children. But what it says is that these children are in captivity. That a tyrant has taken them in the overcoming of of, uh, Zion. Now, within the framework of Isaiah, he's preaching in the city of Jerusalem. But during his lifetime, Samaria in the north, the capital of the northern kingdom, falls in 723 B.C. Isaiah is ministering from 740 to 700. So right in the middle of that, Samaria has fallen, and then the king of Jerusalem started to pay tribute to Assyria, so they passed on by and did not destroy. But God raises up a new king, Hezekiah, who surrenders to Yahweh and rebels against Assyria. And when they come back knocking on the door of Jerusalem, wanting to see it overcome in 701, right toward the end of Isaiah's ministry, Hezekiah prays before the Lord and God delivers Jerusalem. 180,000 Assyrians destroyed by an angel of death and Sennacherib heads up north. This is the window when Isaiah is preaching and proclaiming. But what he envisions here is not a Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day, which is now secure under the grace of God. He's envisioning a Zion that's been overcome, overcome by enemies, where the offspring of Jerusalem have been scattered 
and imprisoned around the world. Now, we might think automatically, okay, we're talking about physical prisoners, but Israel's enslavement, even though Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet in Isaiah's day, and even though he's going to envision the day when the physical Jerusalem is going to fall, from another perspective, he already has a framework for saying the present day offspring of Jerusalem are enslaved. Now before I go back, go there, I just want us to recall something. Already, up to this point in the book, we've seen a number of declarations that those who were oppressing God's people would be put down. So for example, spiritual and physical oppressors overcome. Isaiah 24. We looked at this text, we spent several weeks looking at Isaiah 24 and 25. On that day, declares the Lord, He will punish the host of heaven, in heaven. He'll punish the kings of the earth, on the earth. There's a spiritual realm that he will address, and there's a physical realm that he will address. All of them who've been hostile against him, they'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, they'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they'll be punished. So, the, there's a number of elements that could be operative here, one of which Ezekiel 32 unpacks for us, and that is that Sheol, the grave in the Old Testament, is a prison. Wherein those who've been against God, for those who are believers, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord immediately. But the rest of them get sent down into a ward where they are conscious of their shame and their awaiting judgment. Ezekiel 32. And waiting, waiting for the day of judgment. Now, spiritual and physical oppression, but that's not the only enemy in this book. Death, too, is an enemy. And the testimony is that one day this enemy that, that holds everyone under its captive will be destroyed. He will swallow up on this mountain, notice, Zion, that's where it's going to happen. On Zion, God will swallow up the shadow that has been cast over the people, over the nations. He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Spiritual enemies, physical enemies, death itself, all of which hold people captive, but that's not the final one. Here's the final one. Satan himself, Isaiah 27.1, in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This image representing all evil that reaches all the way back into Genesis chapter 3, 
Isaiah envisions that he will be struck down. It's through him that all of humanity has been cast out of the garden, living in exile, seclusion. They've experienced punishment. They've experienced destruction. They've experienced banishment. All these images of both exile and hell. Now it's into that world then that we read this. Isaiah 42. We covered this at the very end of last spring. Notice how imprisonment is talked about here. Our text is talking about the freeing of captives. Notice this kind of prison. Hear you deaf and look you blind in order that you may see. Who is he talking to? Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? God has sent out his servant people. Remember from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 53, the term servant shows up 20 times, all of them in the singular. Some of those are talking about the servant, the person, who represents the rest of the instances, the servant, the people. The servant, the person, is blameless. The servant, the people, is blind and deaf. Commissioned by God to represent him in the world, to stand as his messengers, and yet sick, spiritually disabled. Who is blind is my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but he doesn't observe them. My glory is everywhere, yet he does not see it. His ears are open. I'm preaching to him, but my word does not fall on his heart because he's spiritually deaf. Now notice how it talks. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The old covenant is filled with glory. But they don't see it. That's how Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.14. A veil remains over their faces so that they can't see glory. And it's only taken away through Christ. It's not that the Old Testament is like a dark room. No, the lights are on, but they've got a veil over their eyes, so they can't see the glory of God that's everywhere. And through Christ, that veil is removed. This people, missing all the glory, is plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Already, they are there in spiritual prison. That's the offspring of Zion in this book. But their spiritual imprisonment will naturally give rise to a physical imprisonment because Babylon is right around the corner. So we read this, But you, O king of Babylon, are brought down to Sheol, that's the place of death, where they are waiting for the judgment at the end of the age. When the dead in Christ will rise first, And after them, all the rest, some to everlasting life, says Daniel 12.2, and others to everlasting contempt. Those who see you, 
O Babylon, will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man, the great king, who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? There's real physical prisoners. And that's what's coming against Jerusalem because of their spiritual enslavement that's already operative in Isaiah's day. Their spiritual imprisonment will give rise to a physical imprisonment, which will serve as a picture of their own enslavement to sin and the devil. But the vision is, freedom is coming. So the question at hand is, right now, as we read in our text, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Yes, they can. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. Why? Because I, I will contend with you, with those who contend with you. I will save you. So here we have Yahweh declaring, I'm the deliverer. I'm the one who's going to act. And yet throughout the book, it's been clear that he has an agent. And if we were to have started our reading at the beginning of chapter 49 today, and we just read all the way through, you would have already heard from him. So just let your eyes push north a little bit up to Isaiah 49, verse 8. So let me put this into perspective. Isaiah 49, 1 through 12 is autobiographical. A person is talking to us, and it's this agent of deliverance who's called the servant. So he says in the beginning, and he's talking to the whole world, listen, listen to me, O coastlands, the Lord Yahweh called me from the womb to be his servant. Verse 3, he said to me, you're my servant, Israel. Remember, servant singular is either Israel the nation or Israel the person. You're my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant. What's his name? Israel, it's too light a thing that you would be my servant Israel to bring Jacob back to him, sorry, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing, Israel the person, that you would bring back the scattered and imprisoned of Israel my nation. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The servant Israel, the person, is set apart by God to deliver Israel, the people, but it's too little that he would just do that. He will also save people from the ends of the earth. And the captivity, I just put up those texts that mentioned the powers in the heavenlies, and the kings on the earth, all of which will be brought unto judgment. Isaiah 24 
comes at the end of a long chain, numerous chapters of foreign nation oracles. And the point is, Israel in Isaiah's day is no different than any of the other nations. They're all under the judgment of God, all of them enslaved. And yet this one deliverer will come and deliver not only Israel the people, but the nations as well. Now we read in verse 8, In a time of favor I answered you. God's now talking to this servant person. The servant Savior. In a day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and give you, servant person, as a covenant to the people. To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Notice what it's next. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. God says, I will show up and save you. In verse 25. But how will he do it? He'll do it through this agent the servant savior, the servant person. He will say, come out of the prison, like Jesus said to Lazarus, come out, and it'll happen. Like the very God who said, let light shine into darkness, and it was. This one will come with that kind of authority, that kind of power, entering into where there is a tyrant entering into where there is a strong man and freeing captives. Now, everybody have your eye there on Isaiah 49. Any of your Bibles have any cross-references at that, at that point? Isaiah 49.9, anything? okay. Anything else? 41.18, okay. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to those two spots and see what you find. So 41.18 and 42.7. This is how we have to go about these things. This process of study. We don't know what we'll find. Okay, 41.18. 17 and 18. Lynn, you want to read those for us, good and loud? The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren springs within valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into streams. Okay, so that actually covers the second part of this passage that mentions, after it says in 49.9, I'll bring prisoners out of darkness. They shall feed along the ways. On bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. And that text is cited in Revelation 21. They will neither hunger nor thirst anymore. 
So there's this image of, of people who are fully separated from any life, and all of a sudden, life is going to show up. How about 42.7? That was the other text. Scott, you want to read that for us? Okay, why don't you put it into context, stretch us out to verse 6, and read 6 and 7 together. I'm the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, to the prison, from the prison, those who sit in the Okay. So that has some echoes of our passage and it's in Isaiah 42, it's specifically, again, talking to Isaiah 42, 1, the servant. God's addressing the servant person. And he says, I'll make you a covenant to the nations, to the peoples, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, but not only that, to free captives. Now, you've got 42, 7 open. Anybody have any further footnotes? In 42.7, next to the mention of prisoners. 35.5, anything else? Okay, so we've got a New Testament text in Hebrews 2, and then we've got 49.9, which is where we're looking. And what else? 61.1, okay, so Tom, why don't you look up 35.5 for us? See if we find anything there that's connected to the prisoners. Yes? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Okay. So there's this grouping of, of blindness and deafness and imprisonment that we're... They're, they're a grouping. They're showing up. Sometimes only certain subsets are together in 35... Um, 35.5, we're only seeing the blind and the deaf mentioned. But the point is, they'll be healed. Then the other text, along with 49.9, was 61.1. Who's got that one? Brother John? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and freedom to Excellent. The Hebrews 2 text, do you want to read that one for us? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So I just encourage you, Take the time to track down some of these rabbit trails that the translators have set before you. They're amazing tools. Most of the world, I wouldn't doubt it if most of the team that Brother Chris is working with in Nigeria, that they're serving people who have never seen cross-references in their lives. Most Bibles don't have them. This is, a, this is part of the tool, part of the gift that's been given to us and track them down, because what it does is it expands our understanding of, of what's being said. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord's anointed me. Who's talking? The same one that was talked to in Isaiah 42 and the same one who's doing the talking in Isaiah 49. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he's anointed me to do a handful of things. Bring good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives. To ultimately proclaim the day of vengeance in the midst of a year of favor to proclaim a day of vengeance when God will ultimately put an end to all the evil, all the enemies, all the oppressors. There's hope there. So this is Isaiah's vision. From Isaiah 49, this is where we go. Isaiah 61, it's the next instance. Now, does anybody have any... When you're in Isaiah 61, does anyone have a footnote there? Or, or maybe you don't even need a footnote. What does this anticipate? Jesus in the synagogue. So in Isaiah 61, 1, right, right there, there's a footnote right at the beginning. You should see it somewhere. And it sends you to what part of the New Testament? Luke 4. We're asking, who is this deliverer? What are the implications of his coming? Here it is. Jesus shows up in Nazareth, opens up the scroll to the place in Isaiah where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. In doing this, he's identifying himself with the servant deliverer. The agent through whom Yahweh will work to bring about the freedom of the captive. He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, anybody still have Isaiah 61 open? You do? Okay. What does Jesus not include? Where does he stop? What's the very next phrase that he doesn't include here? The day of vengeance of our God. So he shows up to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why, did, why might he have stopped right there and not mentioned the day of vengeance? It comes later. So again, part of that mystery that we find in the New Testament where he brings some of the end of history into the middle of history, but not all of it. So we have this overlap of the ages and this, this distance between a year of favor and a day of vengeance when all enemies will be put down. And yet he has done some things. But what this does is it creates... It creates a context of, of tension. We'll see more of this tension in just a second. But I just want to meditate here on Jesus showing up and declaring, I'm here to proclaim liberty to captives. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is what he says he came to do. And I'll just, just pause. In Isaiah, 
the oppression is both physical and spiritual. And in the overlap of the ages, we can still at levels experience both. And I think God wants to give hope. If you find yourself in oppression, he wants to give hope this morning. What did he accomplish, this deliverer? Well, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This demonic spirit of legalism, Paul is addressing specifically here. Demonic spirits of legalism that enslaved, that that held captive, self-reliance. My way, not God's way. But when the fullness of time come, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. He sent his son to redeem those who were enslaved. That's what he came to do. It's what Jesus is doing right now. You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive. He made you alive with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He took our penalty. He bore our griefs. Through his wounds, we get healed. Our sins counted to him. His righteousness counted to us, canceling all record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed all the rulers, all authorities, putting them at the cross to open shame by triumphing over them. So before you leave that, maybe you're going here, but but unpack the, the terms, the rulers and authorities. Does that refer to earthly rulers and authorities, or does that refer to the realm of Satan? Great question. There is no sign that he put an end to Rome in his first coming. In Colossians 1, 16, it uses these exact same two words in this way. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. The visible things and the invisible, comma, Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. They were created through him and for him. It seems most likely he's talking here about spiritual powers. Now ultimately, those spiritual powers are the very powers that are at work in the sons of disobedience, says Paul in Ephesians 2. So, Those that become enemies of God's people and that are hostile to God, the physical humans themselves that align themselves with these demonic powers, their ultimate end was also declared. But what he did here was triumph over the spiritual enemies against God. Text that was already read in Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood with Jesus, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things. He became like us, humbling himself, taking on the very form of a man that through his death, now a human dying for the sins of a human, perfect substitution, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The world sits in the fear of death. This week, I, it, just, it just ripped at my heart. I had an hour and a half discussion with a young man that went to a local Christian college, sat in the biblical studies class, and had skepticism about the nature of God's word taught over and over again in love wanting you to be perfectly aware, 18-year-old, how you've been brainwashed by your parents and thinking that the Bible is without error. And I'm just going to tell you how many contradictions there are in the gospel accounts in one of our local schools. And that set him on a trajectory starting in 2007 to him sitting in my office now not certain that God even exists, tears in his eyes, and I mean, he, he came with a massive list of contradictions and he just wanted me to answer one after another. And ultimately, I said, I can answer all these, but I, I mean, maybe I can even, maybe I can't, but that, that doesn't bring me fear. But you just need to know that Christians for the last 2,000 years have been aware of these texts. This is in our Bible and all of your proposed tensions have been answered quite well. Ultimately, what's at stake is you have to be willing to surrender your life to this God. I said, I don't think you've read this book. He said, I've read it cover to cover four times. I said, I don't think you have. You may have read the words, but you have not met this God. You have not felt the weightiness of the problem that this book describes and the recognition that you and I are both part of the problem and therefore we can't be part of the solution. You haven't seen the glory of the gospel in this book. How much it gives life and hope and help that no other worldview offers. I don't think you've seen it. You have not tasted and seen the beauty of this God and the hope that he's giving and the rescue that he's supplying. And it only comes in this name, Jesus. I asked him if he'd let me pray for him. He didn't say amen. But I just pled with God that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus would intrude like light shining into darkness into his broken soul. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will be held to a much higher account before the living God. And even knowing that this professor and I were students together in graduate school grieves me deeply. There's people living in lifelong slavery out of fear to death. And our Jesus comes in order to let us not have to fear to be able to face death with confidence, with rest, with peace. Now, I, I, I mentioned that 
The fact that Jesus comes as proclaiming, um, no, proclaiming right here, liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, yet not the day of vengeance. That builds attention, and it built attention in the first century. It built attention to John the Baptist. Look right here. See if you can consider with me what's going on in this text. At the very last line, he says, Blessed are those who are not offended by me. So here's Jesus declaring, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. Now when John heard in prison, remember John is in prison. John the Baptist gets taken by Herod Antipas in Galilee and imprisoned because John the Baptist said, you should not have taken your brother's wife. He didn't like that. So John's in prison and he hears about the deeds of the Christ and he sent word by his disciples saying, I know, cousin, that I said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I I did that while I was ministering, but now I'm just wondering. Are you the one who is to come or, or was I supposed to be looking for another? I'm in prison. You remember that? Jesus answered, go back, tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who does not take offense. That's the word for stumbling block. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense. What do you think Why why would he add that at the end of this comment? Go back and tell John, I'm the one. Why would he say that? Because the people in in his hometown said, Who is he? He's Joseph's son. He's a carpenter's son. Why should he be teaching us and standing in the synagogue? Okay. His own people didn't know. So they're among those who were offended by him. His own people in Nazareth were offended by him. Why would he tell that to John in this instance? John was in prison. Unpack that. Well, he was here to set the prisoners free, too, but John was in prison because he stuck by what Jesus said. Okay. Can you imagine how... Think, think about the value of this as we're thinking about global missions, reaching the unre- unreached, the unengaged... John's in prison. Why is he questioning? Are you the one? Because he's still in prison. And the mission of the servant was to set people free. Physically, set them free from the oppressor. And spiritually, set them free from the capital O, oppressor. And he's still in prison. Missing the significance of an overlap of the ages. Where he has disarmed all spiritual powers in in dark places. All of them disarmed. And yet, not fully resolved all physical oppression. John, you need to have a beefy, 
filled up theology of suffering that matches your understanding of the servant savior who was to come. That I've come in two stages, which means you may stay in prison, John. Will you continue to believe? This this balance of physical oppression, spiritual oppression, Jesus came to resolve both, yet not both at the same time necessarily. And that's massively significant as we try to wrestle day in and day out, knowing that some of you are in or have been in marriages where there's been significant oppression. Or you've got kids that are in such marriages. Just broken. God, can you deliver? Are you the one? Blessed are those who will continue to hope, knowing that I am indeed the one who makes the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And all of it will be resolved in my time. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. There's this reality. Well, go back to 49.25, Isaiah 49.25. So 49.25, it mentions for us, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. My ESV has a single footnote, that's it. And when we get to where that footnote ends, it's going to have a footnote that links it back to this text. Where does it point us? What do you see in your Bibles there? Yeah, the cross-reference. And? Anybody else have a different version that's got some others added to it? Jeremiah 53, okay. Okay. Good. All, yeah, all, these are, every one of them is addressing the promise of God's deliverance from the oppressor. It's these two New Testament texts. Spiritual deliverance already, that's what I say here. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. If you were to look that up, it'd have a footnote that said, go back, this was promised. Where? In Isaiah 49.25. That the, the translators are saying, we're seeing a connection here of Promise and fulfillment. That when Jesus declared, I can enter into the strong man's house and I can plunder him. Remember, this is when they're talking, they're, the Pharisees are saying, you're, you're just a prince of, uh, a, a, a worker of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. You cast out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus says, if you do that, the demon's house will fall. And then he says, how can anyone overcome the strong man Satan 
unless he's a stronger one. Who can enter a strong man's house, plunder this man's goods? That's how, I mean, people think they're independent. You are either bound in Satan or bound in Christ. You're a good, a possession of Satan, or you're a possession of the one who's delivered you with an eternal life debt for what he's done on our behalf, a debt that we can never pay off. That's, that's how people are called by Jesus here. You're just the goods of the strong man. But a stronger man has entered in and delivered and brought hope and help and life. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. This is what Jesus came to do. Well, um, logically, that's exactly what has to happen. Because all the work of evil, like putting John in prison, is merely, it's, it's a fruit. It's, it's a result of Satan's influence. So you've got to deal with the source. Um, and what's amazing is that the language here in every deliverance of Jesus in the Gospels, freeing people from being demonically influenced. He says, that, I'm, I'm proving to you, I've already bound the strong man. It's, it's happening in his intrusion into space and time. But it's not only for the demonized, it's also for everyone. You were dead, and God made you alive through Christ. For by grace you've been saved. This is that spiritual side, but there's also, this, this is why I say all-readiness, the all-readiness of our hope from this text. But, so he says, even the captives of the mighty will be taken. The prey of the tyrant will be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you. I'll save your children. There's the spiritual element, but there's more to it than that. There's a spirit, there's a physical hope. And Paul, for example, recalling Deuteronomy 32, don't avenge yourselves. Don't respond to evil with evil, but respond to evil with good, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The promise of that text is unbelievable. What's the antidote? How do you overcome bitterness and anger and, and brokenness? You have a confidence because of what Jesus has done at the cross on your behalf that he will punish every evildoer. He's going to do it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay and I can repay far better than you can ever repay. So leave it to me. You love, and I will bring vengeance 
on all who are my enemies. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, Paul says, that I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, united in Christ, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened, this is amazing, not frightened by any of your opponents. I got to speak down at Austin Stone Community Church down in Austin, Texas. And I arrived in January and in um, late November, no, early December of that year, one of their former pastors had been martyred on the field, Richard Smith. He was there with his wife and children in northern Africa and he was killed. And his wife was now back at the church trying to pick up the pieces of her existence. And it says, don't be frightened by any of your opponents. I just consider, man, how is that possible to have a fearlessness Well, it's blood-bought, it's, it's purchased for us, and in the process it will be a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Just ponder that. You're there with a gun pointed to your head, and you're fearless because you have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. It's yours already, purchased. The enemy of death is destroyed. No captivity. Absolute hope. Absolute rest. And they see that and say, oh my. I have no, no category for this kind of hope. This kind of peace. No fear. Your salvation secure, their destruction certain. That's what it says it will produce in them. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. This is like Paul sitting in prison having learned what John the Baptist was supposed to learn. I've taken no offense At the Christ. Instead, I am absolutely confident that all the enemies of God and all the enemies of his people will be put down. He will consider it just to repay with, repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed on the day of vengeance of our God. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope here. And it actually, Paul says, is supposed to be able to fuel us to be loving people in the present. 
To not respond to evil with evil, but to respond to evil with good because we're confident that God knows our pain and he cares and he will act. He has bound the strong man and he will put an end to all the animosity, all the evil that comes against his church, the offspring of his bride, the heavenly Jerusalem. He will fight for her. He will fight for you. And there's hope there. And I anticipate that within my generation or my children's generation, America is going to increasingly become a very different place where we're going to feel the need for this kind of hope much more. But I'll tell you, most of the church in this world is already there in desperate need of this kind of hope. And the prayers of the saints to be lifting them up to the Father of all power, the great Redeemer and Savior, praying that texts like this will give them hope. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. I would just encourage you, write down, write down these. I can't read the whole unit here. Write down Isaiah 33, 17 through 22. Go home and let your hearts be unbelievably warmed by the hope of this text. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Say to those with anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Just read all of chapter 35. Put it all into context. It's unbelievable. And it's all talking about the same age of the servant Savior. What he promises to do in this period between the first and the second coming. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. Why? Because I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Take comfort knowing that every spiritual oppressor and every physical oppressor will be addressed by our God. And we need to know that because it's a broken world with broken people who hate the work of Christ through his body and in his people. God knows. God cares. He will act. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful and you are our strength. Lord, I pray for our global partners, many of whom are in hostile places, needing encouragement today, I pray that your word would fill them and encourage them. Thank you for a 500th anniversary coming up here of the Protestant Reformation, celebrating a justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based on the scripture alone. We celebrate such hope that there is no condemnation and that we are your children purchased now with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us 
on the other side of every enemy being put down, including death. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.